Welcome to Ciao Bella, hosted by yours truly, Erica Firpo, travel journalist based in Rome. Each week on Ciao Bella, I explore today's Italy, speaking with artisans, designers, hoteliers, architects, artists, Parmesan makers, in other words, the creators who are making the Italy that you love. So sit back and join in. Hey, this is Erica, and I am here in Testaccio, a neighborhood that's about a 10-minute bus ride from my house. And I'm here with Rachel Roddy, who is probably my favorite cookbook writer. And what she doesn't know is I'd like her to write both a children's book and become a book narrator. So that's how I'm going to start out with you, Rachel. I've already given you a job. Um, How do you do? How are you? Very well, actually. It's lovely to see you on this on this like finally sunny day after the strangest, the strangest oh. weather. I feel like it's been sort of schizophrenic. It's been apocalyptic. It's been so cold, and now it's getting super hot, and I'm so happy. Although, yeah, I will be happy. I'm not very good with transitions in any in anything sort of, and so the, the, now the transition into um into like summer will take me a few days. But yes, it is lovely. Well, it was at 27 degrees. But is that because you're cusp? Because since you're born on a cusp, you can't make those transitions? Yeah, maybe that's it. But it will take me a few days. But anyway, it's all I know is that I went to the market and it's like, I feel that we've gone to sort of high tomato season and high cherry season. So so I'm um, So, so when, I'm you very say, happy. when you say the market, you mean Testaccio Market, which is the neighborhood we're in. Yes. And I'm just, I'm going to go right in. Rachel has a book that I bought called Five Quarters. It's won the Andre Simon Food Book Award, the Guild of Food Food Writers First Book Award, and it has another name for our American listeners. What's the title in America? It was called A Kitchen in Rome, was the American title. But yeah, because it was deemed that the English title is Five Quarters. And because this area, Testaccio, that we're in now, has got this history with sort of Quinto Quarto, the awful, the awful cooking of Rome. And that's and, um, O-F-F-A-R. <laughs> that ev- everyone was, um, was concerned that everyone would think it was a book just about awful, just about this sort of very Roman robust cooking of, of internal intestines and tails, and which it does actually have an element of, but no, it's, it's My Kitchen in Rome in, in America, and that came out four years ago. And we're sitting actually in your kitchen in Rome, um, that book came out four years ago, we'll, and, and then you had another book called Two Kitchens, which came out in 2017, um, which is about this kitchen and your kitchen in Jella. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, so maybe, yeah, maybe I should sort of go backwards. So, yeah, I'm, my name's Rachel Roddy. I'm from London, but have lived in Rome, in Testaccio, in this building uh, for 14 years now. And... When I first came to Rome, I'd never been to Rome before, and I didn't know anything about Rome. I was I was staying near Termini Station, oh. um, and uh, as a sort of get out because I was determined to go and stay in Sicily. But I came to visit Testaccio, and the important thing to know about Testaccio, if you look at a map of Rome, um, Rome's pretty much in the centre, isn't it? But Ro- Testaccio, this quarter of Rome, is very um, geographically distinct. It's shaped like a piece of cheese. Um, Testaccio oh, has got. I didn't think about that. It, basically, if you look at it on a map, you've got. Um, it's kind of on one side. You've got the Aventine Hill, which is another quarter. On the bottom of it, you've got the ancient city wall, and then the river curves round. So imagine you've got a great big piece of cheese, and so Testaccio is 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 this very distinct shape, and it's a relatively modern area because it was when Rome became the capital of um, of Italy, which was. 
Erica Philippa reminds me of that date. <laughs> Wait, 1861? 1861. Well, actually, the capital, I think, is when it is 1871. It becomes a capital. This is where um, all the goods were brought in antiquity. And, you know, this is like your port authority, so they're offloading in amphorae, which are ceramic vases, and, you know, they're offloading grains and oils and wines and distributing it throughout the city, all the merchants, and whatever was, whatever they felt like doing, they oftentimes would dump the amphorae in a pile, and Testaccio has something called Monte de Cochi, which is this big hill that is all the residual leftover um, broken amphorae. And so for a long time, this neighborhood was like a storage unit, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And, and then it so, gets developed in the late 1800s. Yeah, right, so we've got this. And in fact, to sort of, to summarize all of that is the fact that it's just incredibly edible. So I'm a, I'm a food writer. Um, I wasn't always a food writer. I was an actress before I was a, a food writer, but I'd, um, a sort of mildly successful actress and then, a, and then a failing actress and then mildly successful again. But anyway, then I left that all. But I'd always written quite a lot and I'd always cooked a lot. So I arrived in Rome knowing nothing about the city or and nothing about the food and nothing about testaccio. Well, what, what brought you to Rome in the first place, by the way? Well, I didn't want to stay in Rome. I, I, was, I, was, I wanted to go to Sicily. Um, uh, so I, I, it all sounds like a sort of walking cliche. But yeah, I was, I was 33. I, I bought a ticket, a one-way ticket to Naples and then I took the night boat to Sicily and was very sort of enchanted by Sicily and, uh, and spent some time touring there and then came to Rome to learn some Italian because I didn't, I didn't speak any Italian. But anyway, I, I arrived in Testaccio and yes, I knew nothing about it. So this sort of history started unfolding. And I think what you've just described about this extraordinary ancient rubbish dump um, is that Testaccio just felt incredibly edible. And um, I used to read a, a blog from a, a wonderful um, classical historian called Agnes Crawford called oh, Understanding yeah. Rome. And, and we now work together, but you know, through Agnes's stories, these sort of pieces of history, the sort of ancient Roman port, these olive oil amphora that were broken and built into a hill of pots, um, this area that was then developed and it became the slaughterhouse area. And, these, um, and they were, most of the people who lived here were worked in either the slaughterhouse or built the railway. But, but basically, this sort of edible area revealed itself to me. And I, well, it was Joanna, a friend said, you should stay here. And I wanted to write. I didn't know particularly what about. But again, it's such a sort of cliche, but, but, but when you're in Rome, I mean, I knew nothing about Roman food. I think I sort of knew carbonara was Roman. And I had very general ideas about Italian food. I'd been to Italy once as an 18-year-old and I'd been to Florence. So I knew the Florentines had steak and white beans, but really I just knew so little about the food. And so discovering Roman food was a way of sort of discovering the city, really. Um, and I started writing about it. So you started writing for your blog. Mm. And your blog is Rachel Eats, is that? Yes, yes, uh, you know. So it's just, just very <laughs> subtle, very, very subtle. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> a name I'm sort of... Cursed. But yes, it was, it was, it was... But again, it's sort of reflective of how um, spontaneous it was. And actually, I, over the years, have been quite sort of ashamed of, of blogging, especially as I was so desperate to be a serious writer. But actually, I look, I look back and it was wonderful. It was a friend of mine who worked for Marie Claire online. And she was, and I, she said to me, you should start a blog. And I had no idea what a blog was. When did you start the blog? I started, well, I started writing in 2007. 
Okay. Um, and then it was published finally in 2008. So early blogging days, it was mostly American blogs that I was reading. Yeah. Um, and they were lively and they were... There was a lot of like personal narrative and there were blogs about everything. There were, a lot of them were young women, they were quite homely, and there were a lot of cooking blogs. And I remember reading cooking blogs and sort of thinking, God, that's such a great sort of template. And so it was perfect. I opened a WordPress blog and 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 um and just sort of copied what other people were doing. And and in Rome it food just was I sort of fell into it really. But you weren't just writing about food because I, I love reading what you write because you tell these stories and well, one, you, you have a great, you're such a great storyteller. I feel like, I, I feel like you and, and Neil Gaiman should make like a, a fusion science fiction cookbook. If, if that would even, that would be like another fantasy of mine. And, and not just because you're both British. I mean, I'm writing I, down these books I'm going to do as I'm uh, talking to my publisher. Because <laughs> I do, I do think that would be one of the coolest things somehow with Neil Gaiman, because you, you both have this incredible capacity for storytelling and bringing people into situations. Um, and I know, so, so your, I know your blog wasn't just like, Hey, I just stumbled across Bolpetti and I ate some parmigiano. Yours are stories about your, your their, their, their food experiences. Um, well, so, well I hope, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think in the beginning they were probably pretty dreadful. I mean, I don't, I don't well, think... everybody starts Yeah, out. I think I learned, I mean, I learned. Yeah, I did. I wanted to, I sort of mimicked the, 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 I tried to write what I wanted to read and, and what I want to read is, 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 sort of stories about things and people. I, I can read great detail uh, about certain places. I mean, there's, there's several bits of writing I go back to again and again. And, and um, I mean, food's a lovely um, subject. I mean, when people say they write about food, I mean, it's often the case that they're writing about life, aren't they? Because food is people and lives and families and culture and the everyday and it's all all the things I love and I can read yes huge detail I mean if I read about Volpetti which is this changed a bit now but this sort of wonderful cheese and salami shop um uh, and it used to be I mean it still is it still exists but you know this great big long glass counter with several men in sort of white coats behind it serving you cheese and salami and prosciutti hanging from the ceiling it was sort of like a boutique of wonderful things and delicious and smelt of sort of cheese and fat and mm. paper in some ways but smoked meat mm. all this all that I want to that's what I want to do I want to I want to read something that brings that to to life for me and and uh, and also the detail isn't it because we read so much about things but actually we know that the how you understand something is that sort of idiosyncratic detail i don't know about somebody with a twitch or 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 you know the lady next to you like you know well, having tourette's syndrome or a child like lying on the floor but it, it's those things that sort of bring it all to life and well, i think you know one of the things I, I always i always think about is one of the pieces you wrote i think in the fall of this year so so rachel aside from aside from writing books aside from having a blog she has a column with the guardian and um, what's the, the title of your, col your column is... In a, a Kitchen in Rome. A Kitchen in Rome, exactly. And you were talking about being at your grandmother's bar, I think, or was it in... Um, yeah, you remember, yeah, pub, a pub, yeah, in, pub, in, a pub Manchester. In, in Manchester. And I think you were... I, I just, I had never really considered corners of bread. You were talking about cutting bread. I believe that's what you're saying. And you called the breads corners. And it was such a... I don't know, I just, I, I really felt like I was sitting like a little because you were talking about being a little girl in your in your grandmother's pub and it was something that just made me feel like I was a little kid sitting there with you. Well, you were you remembering you're remembering it right it was probably me it was probably my auntie May in my granny's pub so my mum my granny had a pub in Manchester which is important because 
as I say, when I was sort of understanding, you know, Erica, you've grown up with this food, but as I say, I really knew nothing, nothing about Roman food and more about Roman eating. Because of course, Roman food isn't just about the food itself, is it? it's about how Romans eat and where they eat it. And actually, Roman trattorias, which I sort of thought were restaurants when I first came to Rome, and actually what I've realised now is they're much nearer to English pubs in spirit. I mean, good English pubs, you know, proper old-fashioned English pubs, which were run by families, which were full of locals, which served sort of... They were watering holes. I mean, Roman trattorias are functional places, aren't they? These are, you know, these are sort of... The evolution of trattorias was especially around here, were working, they were like cafes, they were places where, run by families, serving home-style food, very local, very traditional to local people, in big quantities, and, and actually, so this sort of spirit, so actually having my granny's pub helped me understand, uh, I suppose what I wanted to do was I just wanted to understand where I was, which, again, I will always have the element of feeling a sort of walking cliche tourist when I'm here, but, but, but yeah, what I realised is, even after 14 years, but actually all I wanted to do was understand this this very particular city and and i'm and i'm very conscious of my default position as a writer is to be sort of nostal nostalgic or romantic or sort of weave cliches because my god fucking hell rome is just is a sort of walking cliche, cliche yeah. but the thing about it is, is it's all true it's not it's not you know there are like you know groups of old ladies nattering in the street and pizzeria, you know, we live above a pizzeria. Like, if you come in this building at 7 o'clock in the morning, the whole building smells of pizza bianca and sort of burnt coffee. By, you know, 12 o'clock, it smells of, you know, broccoli, which is slightly less romantic. But, you know, it's a very sort of visceral, um, alive place, and food is such a wonderful way to look look at the city, I think, especially for somebody who's very greedy <laughs> and who likes to or eat. super gulazai, right? Yeah. But you know what I, what I think is, is so interesting is that you've, you know, you live and you live and love and cook in Testaccio. And Testaccio, you know, is not, if we take, if we look at like maybe some neighborhoods in London, it's not actually that big of a place, but you're constantly generating, I mean, you have constantly something to write about. There are all these little anecdotes that you're pulling. I mean, I, I find it amazing that every week, you know, you're, you're creating these stories that you know sometimes are nostalgic for your past, um, but but there is such a root in testaccio, and every week you have there's. I mean, I know Rome is like for me, it's like a, a it's like a comedy, it's like an ongoing comedy every day, and I know there's always something to write about. But I, I find it even more interesting that your your cheese shaped neighborhood um, has constantly provided you something to write about nonstop, especially with the rise. You know, with a lot of people, I think the neighborhood itself has changed a bit. Um, mm. Yeah, it has. It definitely has. I mean, it, ha it has and it hasn't. You know, it. Testaccio is a working class neighborhood. It's been gentrified. But there have been more people that are not from Testaccio that have moved in. But at the same time, I do think, you know, walking around here, I was, I was walking through your market yesterday. And uh, by the way, the guys at Monco say hi. They were so happy that I stopped by. I I'm said I was your friend. I'm going to people. You know, there's, there's something that, that is, is really that this, the neighborhood has changed, but at the same time, it still has maintained, I think, it's still, it's still really neighbourhoody. It's really, really neighbourhoody. Yeah, no, it is, it is. And I think, and, I, and I've been aware of that, you know, having, so Luca's eight now, so this half, well, actually, half, I was about to say half Italian, half English. Did I ever tell you that? So I, my little boy, I said to him, he was really quite little. He's not very precocious, actually. I said to Luca, I said, Luca, you are so lucky, my love, you are half English and half Italian. And he walked away and came back looking really cross with me. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, I am half nothing. 
I am all Italian and all English. And I thought, oh, that, that, is, serves, that, that serves is... me right. Like he will not be dividing up. I think having a, having a, you know, I'm not Italian and I'm in, you know, unlike a lot of my friends, I don't have, you know, Italian relatives or any kind of Italian history. And I mean, I live with an Italian, but actually having Luca and being part of Testaccio as a mum and going to school, that whole new world has been interesting and becoming part of the community in that sense has been a, um, um, a sort of whole new level of being. Yes, it is. It is still a little village. I'm always reminded that was Agnes, you know, and I think Darius as well as giving, you know, these extraordinary quotes about like why Rome feels so village-like. Somebody once said to me that, you know, Rome has the sort of body of a city, but the head of a provincial town, but the heart of a village. And that really stayed with me. And I'm really aware of that in Testaccio, is it does feel like a little village. It's not... Um, and again, I don't want to sort of romanticise it into sort of a twee place, but it's a very, very particular uh, atmosphere here. And I mean, I've lived in London and I've lived in very villagey parts of, of, of London and, and I've lived in India, you know, I mean, I'm aware of how, you know, a village is and that feel. I don't, it's not unique to Rome, but it, Rome's my experience and it's very particular, it is. And it's and there's lots of tourists now in Testaccio, but it is so, it is so edible. I'm that in testament to the sort of hugely imperfect, because I don't want to romanticise Italian food, because, my God, we shouldn't anymore, but actually of the sort of richness and, and imperfect beauty of Italians and the way they eat, because I am never without 14 stories. Like, I never don't have anything to write about. And I'm, loads of people hate what I write, but, you know, I, I don't have... No, no, they do, lots of people, you know. But, but actually, you know, it's, I just, it's just... It's, like, endless stories, and it's just wonderful. But also, I like the sort of little stories. Like, there's a big story in little detail, whether it's somebody sort of... I don't know, buying their vegetables or the guy, you know, the guys from Bangladesh selling the garlic or the sort of new pizza makers at Testaccio Market who are, you know, after sort of financial ruin and now building a new career. You know, it's all, it, all of life is here and it's, um, and it's, uh, and it's wonderful. It's like, it's rich. What do, what do you think it is? Like, just if we, if we talk about ramen food, because I, I do, I think that you said it perfectly, like it, it is imperfect. It is, it is, it, it, the food, food culture here is imperfect and it's beautifully imperfect. What do you think? I, I, always, I always get really happy when people tell me how much they love it because you know I grew up eating Roman food all the time and so yeah. for me it was like, it was like everyday food. And I, I love eating, but you know, I craved everything else. And, and I mean, my favorite dish will always, I mean, I could eat carbonara literally every day of my life. That's, that's for me. But for me, it's, it's, that, it's, it's comfort food. It's, it's my mom's food. Um, what do you think it is that, what, but, but I've never, I've never like idealized it, mainly because it's just what I, it's the only thing I knew. Yeah, I think, and I don't think Romans tend to, I, but in the way that I don't think they sort of, I, I mean, again, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I wrote a piece recently for an Italian magazine um, about sort of how foreigners uh, romanticize Italian food. Actually, if you read English food writing, even very pragmatic food writers, they, they talk about Italian food in sort of biblical terms, like everything's holy and sacred. And, and it's, it is incredible, this sort of language we have of, of Italian food. And I think it's, the language of Italians is very different, particularly in Rome. And in Rome, it's this, and this deep love, but this sort of much more pragmatic approach to their own food. Um, but, um, but it is, uh, you know, I didn't, I says I didn't know anything about Roman food. I, as a food writer, I absolutely love it. I mean, it could, and it's such a surprise to me. 
I, 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 the sort of, you know, the rich, riches of it, whether it be, it was the unexpected dishes for me, because of course, I mean, my writing is, I am writing stories, but also at the end of the day, I'm also writing recipes. Exactly. So, um, and I write cookbooks, and I write a recipe every week in The Guardian. Again, I never, I mean, I have, people often say to me, like, how do you, you know, do you have a problem thinking of anything to make? And that's one problem I I don't ever, ever, ever have. So all the, just the wonderful ingredients, but it is all still quite new to me. I mean, I didn't grow up with it. So I had no idea about Roman food. I knew carbonara was Roman, but that was about it. What are some of, what are some of the dishes that, um, like, that, that are delightful surprises for you? Like, I'll, I'll tell you one for me, which is like so basic mm. and, and it surprises me every time, but I think it's, because I love it so much. It's, it's the easiest thing, it's punterelle. Uh, to me, that is, I don't know why, it's constantly a surprise because of the punterelle with the, with the anchovies and the garlic and the, just a tad bit of vinegar that just makes me, it, it, it's, it's so fresh and it, every time I have it, it's, you know, depending on who makes it, it can be done a different way, like yeah. I make it. Delicious, yeah. And, and that to me is like, you know, it, it, it is, as much as I've eaten it all my life, I, it is a surprise every time. But, but I know, but I'm curious for you because from your perspective, what are some of those dishes that you're like, ah, you know? I think the ones, yeah, I think, I think, those, yeah, the, the, that kind of whole family of bitter greens. I think for me, the real surprise was all that whole family of um, minestra, so the pasta and bean soups. So ah. pasta fagioli, pasta and beans, pasta and chickpeas. Actually, I mean, again, I, again, I, I, they seem so bizarre to me. They're sort of thick bean soups yeah. th um, that you um, cook pasta in. So it's a very dense soup stew, and they make them with with borlotti beans, with chickpeas, with lentils. We could make them with white beans, but, but they're... Um, and then, of course, you've got minestrone, these sort of thick soups. And I think, for me, as a home cook and a cook, they were a sort of revelation. A, because I just, they just seem so counterintuitive when I first came, and now... And Vincenzo, my partner, really likes those, because often in, in Italy you'll find that there'll be similar dishes all over the all over the country, particularly in the south, but they'll be sort of changed by the herb or the or the seasoning right. in them. So, um, and he's he's Sicilian. I mean, he's from mm. a very small town. Yeah. So, did, but lived here a very long time. So, got oh, lived in true. Rome thirty-five years. So he's a. Uh, but yes, I mean those. Uh, as but a I cook, thought he was only thirty. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, drumming, drumming keeps you youthful. <laughs> um, no, he's been here a long time. So, sort of Roman Sicilian, yeah. But I think those. I think though, and then very simple things. I learned to cook again in Rome. I was, I've always been quite a good cook, but, I, but one of the pleasures of coming and also getting over my sort of pride and arrogance was to actually come and learn to cook again. So learning to cook with all sorts of people. So it's often the first thing I do with people. I ask people to show me how to make something, um, which is wonderful because people always tell you stories and people always share their sort of cooking wisdom, even if they're opening a tin of vegetables. I mean, I'm not just in, I don't just, I'm not just interested in sort of romantic grandma narratives about food. I, I'm interested in, I'm interested in people who don't cook. I'm interested in, you know, in, in, in the guy making the pizza or the, say, the Bangladeshi guy, you know, who's, who, the wonderful guy who sells me garlic every morning. So, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in all these stories and all these, all, 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 all sorts of cooks and non-cooks too, really. When you when you first started living here and you were on this and you were you were exploring all of this, how how did that how I mean I, I'm just curious. You said you didn't speak Italian or you were learning Italian. You were this tall, redheaded, British woman, and you were like, "Hi, Testaccio. Teach me everything." How how did that how did that come about? I mean, you must have had friends in the neighborhood, or no, I didn't really. I mean, I didn't. As I say, you know, it's it. It, it was probably, I mean, I suppose I just, I got a flat and I was very good friends with my neighbour, but no, I didn't know anybody and I didn't really speak any Italian. It was 
So again, I'm, I'm sort of self-conscious about that feeling that sort of, that it felt sort of a, a real cliche that I was this 33 year old woman who sort of went somewhere else to, to, to make a new life. I'm like, I, I always cringe when I say it, but actually, yeah, I did. I, you know, I, um, I, um, I, I came and I, yeah, and I, and I just, I, I was kind of learning, and one way of learning to speak Italian was asking people to, to, to cook with me. I didn't even remember. I mean, I went to school for three months. Learning Italian was, was one of the most satisfying things I've ever done because I didn't believe that I could learn another language. So, so that was, I went to this, the school for four months, Dante Alighieri in Piazza Bologna, and I just studied Italian and didn't really think I was learning anything, but actually did. Um, and uh, and it was interesting because over the process of um, I'm not trying to breathe kind of jump on a hairy here, but sort of that process <laughs> of learning, of learning another language, and sort of and 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 so seeing Rome without having the language, and then sort of it being revealed to me through the language. And it's actually it's interesting. Actually, I think sometimes I observed more when I didn't speak because when I didn't have the words, ah. I had to sort of use other. Yeah, had to sort of. I did have to use other ways, and cooking was a was a was a big one of those. I mean, it's interesting, I don't remember feeling I didn't understand things when I was watching, of course. And then actually, it was interesting, when I had a sort of a level of language and I was trying to communicate, then sort of all sorts of barriers came up. It's a bit like children, if you watch mm. children, isn't it, who don't speak another language, they will... They can communicate, but, yeah. They play cards, don't yeah. they, or they... They'll, they'll play with whoever, and there's no language being spoken, or, or they're, they're, they're communicating without necessarily speaking the same language, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I remember going on one summer holiday in Greece and we just, we played cards with these Greek children for four weeks. I don't think we, I think in the course of the holiday, we learnt about 15 words and they did. But we, you guys I mean, were like best friends the whole time. Well, we played Uno. I'd never yeah. played it before. Huh. That's very Italian, isn't it, Uno? Yeah. Did you play it as a kid? Um, we played Uno, we played... <laughs> I, sort of I hate Uno. I'm like that. <laughs> I, I'm like the one. I'm the person that constantly loses at the easiest game on earth. But yes. Did you what was the other card? What was it? Anyway, so we played this card game. We played Scopa. Scopa. That's it. Scopa isn't Scopa. Also, that that sounds very sexual to me. Is it, it is. Is I it? Mean, I mean, I know in in Roman. I mean, I I think in probably all of Italian. It's, I think it's a, it's a it's a very easy way to. It's a very kind of not easy way. <laughs> it's. A, it means fuck, yeah. Yes, okay. So. But like, but that's not the same. It didn't... No, because when you're doing it, it's like you're clearing. The, it's scopa means like sweep. Oh, to sweep. Because you're like sweeping the cards. So you're not fucking the cards. You're sweeping the cards. Yeah. Oh, but I quite like this. I feel I want to like include this in a possible article: sweeping and fucking. It's called, right, I'm going to look up. Okay, that's write, the, write, write it down. That's the other thing about um. So, that, so I think learning Italian's been been a sort of interesting part of of writing as well. That. Um, that process because um, and I speak quite good Italian now but actually st but there's, it's not great it's not perfect and actually that in, it can be frustrating but also can also be beneficial because there are times especially when I go for example if we're in Sicily and I and or some with a very strong dialect it's quite nice that I almost sort of shut down again and then I especially when I'm writing and I actually don't understand anything and I quite like yeah. that sort of white noise because it allows me especially if on my, on my, I'm on my own to, to see things sort of depend on my other senses without yeah. sounding like a complete wanker, but it no, does make no. me depend on other senses. Oh, I, um, I totally agree. I think, I mean, I think that's a, a great, it's funny because I, I'm able to, like, I, I just, I'm able to do that too. Like I can, I can just go deaf, which is really, really nice. Sometimes, because sometimes I need that. Sometimes I don't need to hear anything. I don't need to understand anything because I, I you know. Is that especially when you're looking at art? Is that? Well, it's, it's, 
when I'm trying to solve problems. So if I'm looking at art or if I'm, or if I'm just, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm writing and I'm trying to just take notes and things like that. And I, I just, if I just want to understand a situation, yeah. I like to shut down too. I like to just not, not hear anything. Not, and I'm not saying like I turn off all the noise. I just mean, I, I, I'm able to turn my ear, my ears closed and I, I just let whatever's happening happen. And then, because then I'm forced to see things, I'm forced to see movements that I'm not looking at. Like you're saying, you don't want to sound like a wanker. I don't want to sound like a chump, um, but you know, I'm, you're, I'm forced to, observe how someone's looking at someone else to to see a situation i, I see more mm -hmm. that way than i than when i'm because i think when i'm you know i'm listening i'm communicating i'm having a lot of fun and i might not see the nuances that are going on behind me because i'm just having you know I, i'm a talker and i completely enjoy chatting and um and i love chatting in italian and um but i i think I, I also truly like when i was a kid there was a period where my cousins were like you're so shy she's so sweet and then one day I got in an argument with my grandmother in front of my uncle and he was like, finally, you have a personality. And I was like, yeah, but I kind of like, like I was never being sweet before. I was like, I was just watching all of you guys and, yeah. I, and I needed to observe. And, and I, I enjoy turning to that other part of me. You know, I think it helps me with writing or with, you know, sometimes when I'm eating. Yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> no, I really think it helps with writing. And I, and I think it's interesting. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm, my writing was born, I was born within, within sort of social networks. So when people, especially, again, it, there were waves of it. Initially, it was sort of blogs, you know, sit, I, I, I imagined, again, this is a lot of my sort of own imagining that sort of proper writers criticise blogs or that now, if you're somebody who's very engaged with sort of social networking, that that's somehow sort of a, a detrimental thing. And it, and it's very much been part of my career. I mean, I, my, my writing career starts as a blog. I mean, I would say to any young writer, the only advice I can offer is what, what was my, my own experience, which was start a blog. Because essentially what you're doing by having a blog is self-publishing. You know, but you're, but you're saying the fundamentals of writing. Everybody says it's, if you want to be a writer, you have to start writing. So exactly. if, you know, using a platform like blogs, that it's, it, they're amazing because you're right. You're a self-publisher. You have to think about it in a completely different way than if you're just putting it like when, when you're opening something up to the public, you have to, you're your editor. You're your, your line editor, your copy editor, you know, you're, you have to think about it as opposed to just when I, you know, I'm writing this on a piece of paper, this is just for me. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. All, all the things. And then of course, when people start sort of coming and reading, then you've got, you know, you've got critics. I mean, then, you know, blogs is, is generally sort of quite a milky tea sort of gentle atmosphere. Nobody's, mm. but you know, at the same time, it's sort of, you, you then have got critics. It's a very interesting dynamic. And, and the same with, the same with, um, with, with, again, now with this new wave of communication, whether you're making films or podcasts or you're using Instagram, I think these tools are, are, are really useful. And also, and then of course, like anything, it's how people use them. I must say, I do, I do for me, the, the, the sort of combination of words and, and photographs, photo, words, lots of words, and then photographs without words, um, uh, a sort of that speak volumes are the sort of two most interesting mediums for me. I do, I do need to, you know, obviously if I, I think for somebody like me who is operating within a lot of social kind of media, so you are using a blog and you are using Instagram as a tool. I think, you know, as we all know, it's, it's a case of when to use it and when to not. So for me, for example, Instagram, is about when I don't use it and when I turn it off. And often when I'm writing, I do need to sort of switch off one. It's a bit like we were talking about before about, you know, whether you sort of make yourself deaf. Yeah. It's what you decide to deafen at that any, any point. And there's certainly times when I don't want visual stimulation and there's certainly times when I just need to watch things and there's absolutely times when I just need to write. But I couldn't write without visual stimulation. I couldn't write without images. They're fundamental. I mean, and, and now video more and more is, is you know, it's really useful. You know, I was, the other day I had a picture of someone splitting a wheel of cheese 
and I take really, you know, and I take really thorough notes of things about where the knives go, but actually it was wonderful to have the film and to see like exactly like what he did and how he got those little fat knives in and then broke it open and then what it looked like. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. So I love being in this, can I say, like, multimedia? Yeah, you it's, say that. You know, it's really exciting. I love sitting here talking with you. It's really, I feel it's all very sort of... It suits Rome as well, doesn't it? Oh, it totally suits Rome. Now, <laughs> Noisy. Now, I have to ask you a question, though, because I know the next step... Not the next step, because I know I know we have next on the agenda of, of you is that you have another book coming out, or you're working on another book. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it's a book about pasta. It's 50 stories about 50 pasta shapes. So the idea is that you through those 50 stories of mostly dried and mostly quite familiar shapes. This isn't, I mean, there are, there are more than 1,500 pasta shapes with sort of probably 5,000 regional names. Pasta is just encyclopedic. I'm not trying. And there is already a very beautiful book about pasta called The Encyclopedia of Pasta, written by an extraordinary Italian woman. So I'm not trying to pretend to be a sort of expert, but what I'm trying to do is take 50 shapes that, that that for an English audience that sort of give you a narrative about, about pasta, the history of it, the geography of it, in a sense, a sort of, and then with lots of recipes. How are it's, you so selecting the pasta? Like, I mean, if there's so many pasta shapes, how are you selecting, how are you narrowing it down to 50? Well, exactly, not very well at the moment, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's feeling a little bit out of control. It's very flabby, my pasta at the moment. It's overcooked, let's say. It'll be, it's a, more a case of, it's like a jigsaw. That's what I'm hoping that, you know, by, I mean, there are plenty of books that are encyclopedic about pasta. I'm, I'm hoping this is a sort of companion book, but I'm hoping that by choosing the piece... I mean, we start with A for Alphabetti, the little, the little oh. sort of pastina, yeah. which could be any one of the pastinas, but we're sort of picking shapes in order uh. to sort of give the narrative... Uh, um, to give the, it a shape. And so it'll be a case of me finding the shapes that best tell the story. Um, uh, uh, that's the idea. It's feeling, it's feeling quite overwhelming, but it's exciting. I, I, mean, I like writing, so... And I like pasta, so... Well, I can tell you, like, pasta, you talk about it a lot. <laughs> but you know what you were saying? Before we, before we started recording, you, you, you quickly mentioned something that I, I was just caught off guard. You said that um, you were talking about drying pasta in Sicily. Mm. And I had, you know, I, I didn't, I, I've never um, thought even to ask myself, like, to research or think about the history of drying pasta. I just, pasta for me is just, it's always been there. You know, pasta was the Big Bang theory. The Big Bang happened, and right with it was pasta, dried pasta. Mm. And you were saying that the the, um, the Arabic culture that the, they brought the they they were drying the pasta in southern Sicily. Mm. It was the it was the Arabs. It was the Arabs who dried. I mean, the, the sort of again, I'm writing a book, and again, I don't want to sort of pretend to be any sort of expert. But but yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the origins of pasta are sort of multiple, aren't they? There's a very good, you know, that that it came from many forms. It wasn't one particular form. I mean, this idea that it sort of came from China, although there were, of course were noodles and pasta in China, but it was very much an evolution here from this kind of combination of the Greeks and the Romans. But it was the Arabs who first dried pasta. And I think in, in Trabia, so on, the, so on the coast, the coast of Palermo, that south coast, but the Arabs, like many things, I mean, the Arabs arrived in Sicily and they, and they were the first to dry strings of pasta. But also, of course, history is written by those who can write it, isn't it? So, so... <laughs> Astarius, yeah. So, so, um, so yes, so, the, so the, the origins of pasta are many. It's a, a, many threads, but it was the Arabs who first dried during their occupation of Sicily, Sicily which would have been about sort of 900, Vincenzo Caristia, <laughs> the Arabs dried pasta. Um, yeah, my we partner's walking in the kitchen, but yes. We it, were just in, um, is it Marta de Valle? Okay. Um, which is, was the big port in antiquity. Um, 
So the big Greek port in antiquity, and the, I believe, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, the, I think the Carthaginians came there as well. It was, it was huge. It was huge. It was huge in antiquity, and um, is this small, small, small town. It's where all, I think, it's, it's a huge fishing port now. And then it was this humongous, or very, very, very large Arab city in like the 700s, I believe, in the 800s. Darius yeah. is going to kill me if I get this all wrong. Um, and, you know, and it's got... It, it's a speck right now. It's really tiny now. I mean, it still is a port city, but this, the town itself is, is super tiny. But during antiquity and during the Middle Ages, it had this incredible heyday. And it was also the crossroads roads of all this culture, the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs. I mean, everybody had to come through there because it was this mega port. And it, it, it's just fascinating when you stand in these towns in Sicily and, and you find these, like, you know, you're, you're talking about the... Um, the drying of uh, the drying of pasta, but you know you stand in these towns and like for, I spent I, I learned a lot about trade winds when I stood in that town with Darius because we I, you know I, I knew this was a point but I had no idea also you start thinking about the Crusades coming down mm -hmm. and they're going to stop off at that port I mean throughout the centuries these little places in Sicily were incredible um, which is probably why I like to keep going back and I'm I'm so excited I, and I know that you by Having you know your your uh, by having Vincenzo, you guys go back every summer. But I also know that you go to Sicily. You have this writing class. Is it called the language of food? Mm, yeah, we do. Yes, I, do. I worked for a long time with a cooking school, and we I go so in the central Sicily, which is wonderful. Yeah, I go back a lot. I mean, we we our house is on the oh, it's on the south coast. Wait, but, okay. So tell me exactly where Jella is because. So south coast in between, if you think if you think about, if you look at sort of a map of Sicily and then you've got, can you imagine, so you've got Agrigento mm -hmm. and then you've got sort of Ragusa. Okay. And Licata. So Gel is in the middle on the south coast. Mm -hmm. So it's a very industrial town. It's a town that, um, that was blighted really in many ways in the 1950s when they built, built an oil refinery. Mm -hmm. It's a town with a rather sort of difficult, traumatic history. I mean, it was a fishing and farming town. It's got a fascinating history. Um, and, but then again, like, like Testaccio, I mean, ancient roots, it was where it was one of the first colonised towns. This is where I'm going to sort of my layman's history. But again, this is sort of, but again, you know, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, the, the sort of, you know, the Greeks arrived there and there was everything. It's so rich, Sicily, isn't it? You're so, I mean, I'm so aware of Vincenzo's family were you know, still are farmers, to me, tomato farmers, and artichokes and cotton. I remember I was reading something that you wrote about um, about drying tomatoes in in, in jello. Is that what, is that mm. correct? And it was great because I think you were like basically you had kind of had me walking down the street, and I was just envisioning these little uh, these little side streets with people with with like trays of tomatoes lying out. Um, and you, it was just, a, I don't, I don't know if you were telling me this or if this was no, a no, piece. No, 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 it was, it was, yeah, there are people still, I mean, not in the way that they used to, but, but the, um, but the, yeah, the drying of, the drying of tomatoes. And the, the big thing is the strato, that sort of concentrated tomato paste ah. that's made in, um, that, that everybody used to make. They used to make it on rooftops. It's quite extraordinary. You make a, a sort of thick tomato sauce. Vincenzo's grandmother was 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 was, was, was I would say they were tomato farmer, so they had a huge amount of tomato process. So you make this this thick tomato sauce and spread it on wooden boards in the sun, and then as it dries, it's that's, turned. That's what you were writing about. And yes. it almost goes a bit like it's really bizarre. It almost goes a bit like a bit like clay. It's, it goes dark, like sunburnt yeah. red, and you get this. Well, it's like we buy tomato puree in England in tubes. This is a sort of the very concentrated. Um, Sicilian version, quite extraordinary because it does taste sunburnt, the sort of very essence of tomatoes, it's very very delicious and thick and they use it in their food 
um, but the, the, the cooking school now, they, they make a lot of this. And, but in general, people still do make, not as they used to. They used to, I mean, I think everyone used to make it on their roof. Um, it's a, it's not a kind of dying, dying habit, but it's certainly one that's, um, a, you know, a, a, a lot less common. But you still see, you still see old ladies and then obviously sun-drying tomatoes. I feel I'm rambling, but yes, exciting, like a, I, 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 I like, I, I, again, I like going very much and I, and, um, and I like spending time, we'll go for June, we'll go in June and, and um, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful island, Sicily, yeah. beautiful ugly, beautiful, terrible island. That's why I love it. I think, yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of, uh, oh, it just, it just the Italy I like. It's, that's the way I like it. It's, it's kind of the essence of decadent in the sense that, you know, the word, where the word decadent comes from. So it's decaying, it's falling apart, but it was amazing at one point. And then there are parts that are still amazing, you know. I mean, the nature in Sicily, aside from the food, because I, I, my, my, my goal in life is to eat caponata in every single town, like just because I want to, Make. Come to Jenner, I'll make you on a, on a rooftop. It's re really... Do you, yeah. guys, do, you, do you use raisins, just out of curiosity? Um, sometimes, depends. Mm. It depends. I've got various, various I, recipes I, for it. I get kind of like, I think I get offended by the use of raisins. Do you get offended by the use of raisins? <laughs> Tell me about this. Is this a, <laughs> it's, like a, it's this weird psychological... I think because I, I grew up with... My, my nonna would make it, but he, he never would put raisins in yeah. it. And... And so, and then I, I love, I mean, I love any caponata, but I've noticed that when I have it with raisins, I'm like... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not a massive fan, but so the other thing about it is, but I do, I do think a lot of those, I've got a bit of um, a funny thing about like, what I saw as dried fruit in recipes, but I do think that a lot of those Sicilian dishes where they use dried fruit, it's completely different when they use those tiny little black currants you know that oh. they they look like teeny teeny mouse droppings. Yes. The the uva di Corinthia, I think they call them, and they are completely different. Like when I make, if I use pine nuts, and you know a lot of Sicilian dishes yeah. call for that sort of either sugar and vinegar sweet and sour or raisins and pine nuts. If you use little currants, I'm going to make you some dishes with currants in them, okay. and I will. Yeah. That's but like, but no. But again, I'm I I can be a bit funny about raisins. I mean, big like you don't want sultanas in things, do you? It's all wrong. No, 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 no. Like, and, I, and also, I never even want to hear that word sultana. Like, I just, I feel <laughs> like offended I, by sultana. I feel like I have to hang. I have to, I have to conclude this. I'm dying right now. Um, but I, I know, actually, you have to pick up your son. I have to drop this off to my, my 14-year-old son that I don't have. <laughs> um, but I want to ask you a quick question for our listeners. If they were to come to the Testaccio Market, I, I, I went to the Testaccio Market yesterday with a friend of mine, and I went to, um, it's called Manco, right? Casamanco, yeah. Casamanco, the pizza, uh, the, the pizza Italia. Yeah. Uh, what number is that? Oh gosh, I think they're. Is it twenty? Is it like? I want to say twenty-two. I, yes, I don't know what. Yes, I think it is twenty-two because I think that's in there. Yes, it's 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 if you it's yeah it's in the middle of the statue. The lovely thing about Casamanco, this pizza store, is that unlike a lot of the other food stalls, it's not sort of at the back, is it? No. Abandoned. It's right in the middle of all the fruit and vegetables. I think they're really special. I wrote about them last week in the paper. I spent quite a few mornings with them, um, making pizza, and they they're wonderful. I mean, it's, you know, it's a new life for them. But Andrea and they let the dough rise. Oh my door, my squeaky door. They let the dough dough rise for four days. I know they were telling mm. me that. I read your piece, and then they were telling me that yesterday. And I and they use integrale, which mm. it, it just ha it had that nice. I was so excited because it had that nice, like slightly. It was, not, it was even, like, yes. you know. And I, I really thought that was great. Um, what other banki should uh, someone like myself check out? 
I think I wonder around Testaccio Market. I'm also, I, t I sent some English people to the Testaccio Market the day. You know, the market moved, before it moved to its new, very modern venue, it used to be sort of just below where we are here in this, and it was a sort of almost like medieval Caravaggio-esque market, wasn't it? Dark, and now the new market's very modern. I think people say, a friend of mine was like, oh, it's like, you know, it's like Manchester. It's a modern market, but I think going around all the stalls, the, the, there's a, um, you know, there's a, if you go in the, in the, in the centre where the bar is, there's a guy called Filippo who comes from between Rome and Naples, very distinctive with a sort of crest of white hair, you won't miss him. You know, his fruit and vegetable stall is wonderful for, for, for... Rome's got really wonderful produce, you know, yeah. especially at this time of year. I, um, yesterday I got all those tabacchiere, those the, the, the pesquis sketchate. Yes, and getting apricot, apricots oh. and cherries and delicious tomatoes. But I, I mean, all, the, the casamanco for, for me, the, the, that big long sartor, which is a meat stall, is wonderful. There's, um, and then at the back, there's just lots of nice fruit and vegetable stalls. And then a, a great, a few, um, the casamanco and also uh, Mordia Vai that does very good boiled beef sandwiches. Oh, those are great sandwiches, yeah. And I think anywhere, I mean, Rome, Testaccio is full of trattorias. And I think, you know, nowadays we're very good at sort of giving people lists of where you must go and where you must eat. I just think there's a, there's a lot of good place in Testaccio. I think you just should go and look through the door just and what, do you, fa what you fancy, what you fancy. And I always say to people, if you're coming and staying in Rome, um, of course have lists of recommendations, but, but, you know, ask local, ask locals and go in somewhere. If you like somewhere, like go back the next day and actually then go back the day after because you will be repaid like tenfold. If you go back in a trattoria the next day, if you've liked it, they will treat you, you know, as friends. If you go back the third time, you'll be their family. You know, it's that sort of loyalty. I think, I think, um, I think sometimes I, as a kind of food writer, can sort of have people running round chasing their tail to go to all the must, the must, must eat places naturally. You know, if you want to, there's a lot of good trattorias in Rome. And I say, and going, if you like, if you like the look of somewhere, and then you like a, the food somewhere, I'd go back the next day. Yeah, that's what I do. I love, I love hearing that. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, and I think that also just defines Rome in a nutshell because Rome is not, it's, it's not always easy. I, I but I think it's super friendly. And mm. the minute you show a little love, Rome shows you a lot of love. And I love Abs it. absolutely, yeah. And to, oh, and then and then to statue, I say the one place that I'd say. To definitely go to is Passy, which is the bakery, oh, that's which right. is just underneath us. Yeah, and they do, and it's a wonderful old-fashioned bakery, and they do really good pizza bianca. Maybe not quite as good as your sort of rosciolli, fondi campi fiori, but bianca and rossa. They do this sort of crisp, thin tomato pizza, and you know, queue with all the old ladies and wait for it to Ooh, sort of come out of the oven and I'm get uh, that. I'm go and get out. that right now. It's that's, delicious. That's a great idea. It's quite greasy and it gives you a greasy chin and um, that's, uh, to me that's such a good sign i love it when you're like and you can't and you like, like where your divot is and you're like i thought i got it off there yeah and it's still there at sort of four o'clock when you're in a meeting yeah. that is yeah the sign of good pizza well rachel thank you so much for sitting with me i'm so happy to see you and um i i'm coming back to eat something but not with sultana yeah <laughs> it was lovely to talk to you thank you for having me thank you Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ciao Bella. You can find all my episodes on iTunes, and if you have time, subscribe, rate, and let me know your thoughts on the podcast. You can also be part of the podcast by donating. Find Ciao Bella on Patreon.com, where with as little as $1, you get behind-the-scenes photos and videos as I travel all throughout Italy. To learn more about me and my work, go to my website, ericafirpo.com, and follow my Italy adventures on Instagram at ericafirpo. Ciao Bella! Ciao Bella!
And a very big thank you and hug to Massimiliano Yonta and Disc to Disc Studios, the producers of Ciao Bella who continue to make me sound and feel great. 